shooting. Skimmer Way near Lakewood, Charles 478, Tango. Thank you for joining us on Inside EMS. Now the always entertaining Chris Zebalero and the Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Well, thanks for joining us again on Inside EMS. I'm your host, Chris Zebalero, and with me always, my shadow, Ted Nugent of EMS, Kelly Grayson. Kelly, how are you? I'm fine, man. I'm, I'm I like Peter Pan shadow. I have a I have a life of my own and, and right. a will of my own. Yeah. You've been uh, you've been uh, sewn to me. Uh, Wendy actually sewn sewed. You know that was the first time the name Wendy was ever used was in Peter Pan. No. Yeah. Yeah. That's, <laughs> really. That's true, man. That is true. Look it up if you're ever on Jeopardy. That's uh, a made up first name time the was, Wendy was ever yeah, used. That's right. that's right. So everyone named Wendy was was you know indirectly named after a character in Peter Pan. But you it, theoretically, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Huh. yeah. How about that? So let's uh, let's quick talk about, uh, you know, I know last week we kind of chatted about the things that are going on in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. How, how's things looking? They getting better down there? Or uh, they're it in seems the horrible, horrible man. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. The well, the the floodwaters have receded for the most part, and and we're in in recovery mode, you know, and salvage and recovery mode. So uh, luckily, I didn't get any water in my house. Uh, my house is. is has is pretty high elevation anyway, and it's up on piers, so it would truly have to be a a biblical flood for me to uh, to get water in my house. But many of the creeks were flooded around the house and leaving roads impassable. You couldn't uh, couldn't get to certain places unless you had a a four wheel drive truck with a pretty high suspension. But those guys in Baton Rouge, um, man, it just you know the water's out of there now, and they're now they're having to rip out sheet walk, sheet rock and carpets and flooring and everything, and combat the mold uh, problem that's going to be setting in in such a humid environment. But um, a lot of recovery and salvage left to be done. Uh, we're only only just now getting into it, but at least the ambulances that have been deployed to uh, uh, during the disaster have been able to to demobilize, and and that that part of the uh, the response is winding down, thankfully. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what those guys are going through. And I know you were going to reach out to some of your peers down there and, and try to get them on because I think it'd be yeah. really awesome to hear the challenges that uh, they had to go through and, uh, you know, kind of share with the audience. But, you know, I do have a question for you. So if, sure. if your house is up on piers, mm-hmm. how, how do you get the wheels on the ground? Well, I, we took the we took the wheels off because oh, okay. you know I, I needed some I needed wheels for my trailer yeah. uh, for my my utility trailer. Oh, so you so just got to rob Peter to off. pay Paul. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. We just you know and you know some of the cars on blocks in the yard you know look a little classier when they actually have wheels on them. So oh, I I, I move them around as as needs dictate. So man, you are just a resource <laughs> manager. You know that? that's a it. Resource man. manager. That's it. I'm a I'm a repurposer. That's right. All right, dude. <laughs> Well, let's go ahead and uh, talk about some news, man. Uh, what do you got for us? I got a, I've got a, a tale of two contrasting cities here. One is uh, Rouse's Point, New York. Uh, it's a small village in upstate New York, and they're taking a look at their shortage of critical care personnel, uh, looking for ways to uh, to make sure their ambulances are staffed. <clears throat> they're uh, currently uh, um, served by Volunteer Rescue Corps. And they only have three critical care EMTs, and and one may be moving away. So the city the city is uh, 
or the village is is looking at either paid staffing to augment the the volunteer rescue squad or dissolving the volunteer rescue squad, uh, revoking its uh, certificate of need, and then funding a full-time paid service with tax dollars. Uh, But it sounds like uh, the... uh, the village trustees, Arville Moore, Benny Arno, and the the fire chief there, Mike LeBlanc, are uh, and and Mayor Dan Latorno are committed to full time ambulance service for the uh, for the village. Uh, so there's no way we're not going to have a resolution of this. The mayor said, if the residents need an ambulance, they're going to have an ambulance with the appropriate staffing on board. They're you know they they looks like they're making the commitment one way or another to make sure that. Uh, that ambulances are available for their community. Now, let's contrast this with New Haven, Connecticut, where New Haven, the city of New Haven, is looking to uh, add two paramedic units to the fire stations, and they're running into opposition uh, from the fire department union. Uh, Fire department union says that the current department's current deployment plan is working well, and that he believes changing it could affect response times to fires and emergency medical calls, uh, emergency and other medical calls in the in the city. Um, this uh, <laughs> new I, I looked up online. New Haven, Connecticut, has a population of about one hundred and thirty thousand. According to this news article, or uh, according to this news story, uh, they have two paramedic units to cover a city of one hundred and thirty thousand. Uh, by contrast, the city I, the the uh, company I work for covers Lake Charles, Louisiana, with a population of about seventy five thousand, with at least four full time twenty four seven paramedic units, uh, and in the greater metropolitan area, uh, staffs upwards of ten and even more uh, during peak load hours uh, for uh, a population of one hundred ninety thousand. So, right now. New Haven, Connecticut is covered with two ambulances uh, for 130,000 people, yet my money-grubbing private for-profit employer managed to cover a uh, city substantially smaller than that and make a profit with four ambulances full-time and upwards of 10 uh, for the surrounding area. I think it just... uh, it's pretty egregious um, that they're actually fighting this. uh, The city wants to take a a couple of... uh, Uh, fire apparatus that are used only 25% of the time as opposed to 75% of the call volume being ambulance and medical calls and staff them with paramedic transport units. Um, And the fire department is resisting it tooth and nail. Uh. You know, I think one of the questions, though, that I have to ask is, you know, when you talk about New Haven, Connecticut, and, you know, the population of 100-some-odd thousand, what's the call volume? Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Yeah, but, so, you that's, know so when you so when you say but when you the, say a hundred thousand a hundred thousand population, there are a lot of populated areas that maybe don't even turn a wheel a day. You know, so mm-hmm. it depends. They're bedroom communities. You know, people are, are are leaving to go to work and go to other cities. You know, so I think that I, I I'm with you and I understand I understand the frustration, but I don't know that um you know, we have enough information to say that the you know, the demand analysis isn't calling for just two trucks. Now, I would think for the purposes of uh, uh, of workload, um, you may want to have another truck or, or a peak load truck or something like that. But without knowing the call volume, I don't know that, uh, you know, this story really makes a lot of sense. I would, I would, hes- I, 
Uh, you're right, but uh, I have a really, really hard time believing that two ambulances to cover a, a uh, uh, area, a population of 130,000 is sufficient. You know, no matter which way you cut it with, with their call volume or whatnot, uh, not knowing their call volume, you could, uh, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to say, but I, I'm highly skeptical that two ambulances are enough. Uh, for a population that uh, that high, yeah. um, I know some people that work for New Haven uh, as paramedics, and um, uh, I'd be interested to get their take on it. Maybe we'll revisit it at a later date. But don't you miss the good old days when fire departments used EMS to justify current staffing and 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 uh, funding instead of uh, resisted it? <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you, I mean, you know, it was really interesting. I, I, I chatted with uh, – I'm doing some work with one of the fire districts here in St. Louis and, uh, you know, bringing them some education. And and what was really interesting is the the EMS uh, – I'm sorry, the, the chiefs of the department that, that I was chatting with, they're very, very disappointed that their uh, workforce is not more willing to aid the ambulance side of the business. You know the the what's going to keep them satisfied is to is to get off the ambulance and to not run those calls, whereas the the leadership of the department is saying this is our business now, and mm-hmm. it was a very very refreshing um, you know a refreshing uh, uh, take you know hearing from the the, the mm-hmm. chiefs that their challenge isn't necessarily wanting to make the change and I'm talking about this specific department isn't wanting to make the change. But it's trying to get labor in, uh, to agree to say, you know, we want to move to this new model or, mm-hmm. or we want to be able to make sure we're delivering the highest quality of patient care. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think we sit here and, and when we talk about this, um, we don't think that uh, people are on our side of wanting to deliver that care. But in actuality, their hands are tied as well. Well, yeah, changing the culture is going to take a long time. Uh, and unfortunately, the culture quite often, uh, I'm not trying to tar every fire department EMS system with the same brush, but uh, the culture in, in a great many uh, fire department EMS systems is is anti-EMS. Uh, they look at EMS as a necessary evil. And and when you think about it, you know, when you were a little kid and you were a little boy, what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, you wanted to be a cop or a firefighter? Or an whatever. underachiever. An, an underachiever. A fire watcher. Uh, yeah. No, is that not a good job? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a great job. Uh, if you can get paid as, the same as the firefighters, that would be great. Um, you know, but, you know, little boys want to grow up to be firefighters and cops and stuff, and there's the romance and the, the thrill of it. And realistically, these guys that, that join the fire department don't do it to render medical care to people. They do it because they want to be firefighters. Um, and you see a lot of, you know, fire EMS systems that tout their commitment to EMS by saying, well, you know, to even get hired here, you have to be an EMT or you have to be a paramedic um, uh, to uh, to work here. Uh, and that's a that's a pre, you know, employment requirement. Um, but it, it that doesn't fix the problem either, because what it makes is it makes EMS a necessary evil. It makes EMS one of those hurdles you have to get over uh, to um, get to, to get to ride the big red fire truck, right. uh, and and the people that you know that do that don't 
view EMS as as a, a career path in and of itself. Uh, it's just one of those things you have to do. It's paying your dues before you can get to become a real firefighter. Uh, and that really sucks, and it doesn't do justice to EMS and, it, uh, uh, you know, uh, how to – how to resolve that problem. Uh, you know, I have my own thoughts on that issue and I've voiced them before and I don't think we need to do it again, but, uh, please uh, please don't do it again. (laughs) Hopefully, hopefully new Haven, uh, can resolve its issues and they can actually staff, uh, EMS adequately in the area and do so in a cost effective manner. Um, so we'll, we'll pay attention to that and see how that, that story develops over time. So what have you got for us, man? Yeah, before we go, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to mention is you talked about, you know, know, changing the culture. Uh And, you know, I want to be I want to share with you as I'm I'm doing a lot of research right now, and I'm I'm doing some work with some organizations on, you know, their um, changing the culture of their leadership team, changing the culture Uh of their workforce. Do you know that to set a culture, uh, to change a culture in an organization, the average time is three to five years? I would I would have thought that it would be longer than that. Uh, I imagine with the with the larger organizations that cycle would be would gr- be greatly expanded, uh, well over five years, depending on on what their turnover rate is. But yeah, you know I, that that doesn't surprise me. The only surprising thing about it is it probably I would have thought it takes a good deal longer than that, um, because quite frankly. If you're going to radically change the culture of an organization, um, unless you get, unless you're a charismatic enough leader with a with a well articulated plan and vision that you can share and sell to your employees, um, the culture is not going to change. Right. Um, and the only way to change it is through attrition uh, and replacing the people, the holdouts with people uh, that you hired specifically because they, they share the same vision you do. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have to have a massive turnover in employees before the culture significantly changes, you know, and this, this is something Nancy, that that's her mantra, culture, eat strategy for breakfast. Uh, yeah, no matter you know, how you good saying, you keep saying that. And every time you say that, I, I always want to argue with, with that's, you on that, well, but, but that's a Jack Welch. No, I know, no, no, and, and I know. Jack I know, was I know. a, uh, it was a was a very effective CEO yes, for, was. for yes, large quarters, but um, you know, but it's true. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, she said uh, Peter Drucker, but Peter Drucker, Jack Welch, cut from the same mold, really. Uh, that was a Peter people, Drucker, same people. Yeah, yeah. You never notice. Yeah, yeah, you don't see Peter Drucker and Jack Welch in the same room. It's <laughs> that's time. right. Uh, <laughs> well, you need to get Nancy <laughs> on. We need to we need to debate that. And I that. think she'd be but, uh, really good to. But uh, yeah, you know, to to really change the culture, you're going to have to uh, get buy-in, which is, requires a, a great deal of, of charisma and, and effective leadership. Um, and uh, if you have way too many holdouts, the only way to get around it is to replace the holdouts. Uh, and I don't think we no. do that enough. I mean, we've got to either move those, uh, you know, actively disengaged employees. Yeah. We need to get them to move up. Yeah. or we need Lead, to follow, up. or get the heck out of the way. Exactly. I'm going to give you all the tools to be successful. And if you're not going to be successful, I'm going to help you be successful somewhere Be mediocre elsewhere. Yeah. Exactly. So, all right, <laughs> let's go ahead and move on to the next one. But I think this is a good topic. And, you know, one mm-hmm. of the things that I think we need to start chatting about, and we might need to put this into our uh, – you know, our agenda of, to talk about is I think we really need to talk about the importance of how the, the new millennials are going to change the structure of our workforce and how, as leaders now, 
uh, even as peers, how are we going to interact with these people because they're the leaders of tomorrow? And one of the things that we're seeing now is that the days of command and control, uh-huh. you know, the days of leading from a, a position of authority are over. And yeah. we really now have to think about the new workforce that comes in. And one of the challenges of EMS, Kelly, has always been that we resist change at all levels. And we've got to be able to now change with the times as well, because we're not going to be effective leaders when we talk about uh, delivering the highest quality of patient care when the people who are out in the field don't really want to be there. Yeah. You know, and and Nancy, this is, we'll have to get her on to discuss this. This, this is one of her, uh, her pet topics and she, uh, she's an obsessive researcher, researcher on this thing. And she is, through her researches, has become a lot more um, uh, forgiving uh, or less critical of the millennials. You know, they, it's the common perception is that millennials are selfish and, and immature and, and not uh, motivated sufficiently. Uh, and she doesn't believe that's true. Uh, she true. merely believes that they are they are motivated in different ways and their priorities are different. And, and the leadership styles that we use in, for past generations are not going to work. Uh, she's, she's a strong proponent of, of every millennial needs a, uh, needs a baby boomer as a mentor because their, their, uh, personality types and their characteristics of those two generations complement each other very well. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, you know I think how I wanna... we're going to motivate the workforce of the future and to adapt to their needs and their unique talents is, is something that every manager wrestles with. You know, and one of the things that's really interesting when you talk about that, and, and if we think about, uh, you know, outside of EMS, by the year 2020, and all, all the research that I'm reading now and, and, and doing, by the year 2020, we are not going to have the same workforce. And I don't, it doesn't, it probably, it may affect even the medical side, but it, I don't know how it's going to affect EMS. But um, there is going to be more contract labor or more consultant labor then mm-hmm. there is going to be workforce labor because the millennials don't want to work nine to five. They don't want to come in the morning. They don't want to punch a card. They don't want to sit there all day. They mm-hmm. want to be able to dictate their time. They want to have flexibility within the workforce. They are motivated. They are inspired, but they're not going to put up with BS and they want to do things their own way. Now, for us to be successful in business, for us to be successful in as leaders in scheduling and stuff, how are we best going to do that? But we, we can't wait till the 11th hour to make those changes. Yeah. We've got to be able to embrace those changes now. And I know that uh, this one story that we started with, we really have to be able to, to, to follow these things because mm-hmm. we've got to change how we're focusing and leading our workforce today and yeah. prepare for the workforce of tomorrow. Yeah, we need a broader skill set. Well, let's go ahead and we'll jump into one more right. story and... Uh, well, Kelly, I got to tell you, I mean, I've been doing a lot of work uh, with community paramedicine and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just love this new model. And I think that as we transition into this new healthcare environment, you know, EMS is really poised to make a big difference. And, you know, one of the leading uh, organizations in the community paramedicine transformation is uh, up there in uh, Reno, Nevada. And this story comes out of uh, Carson City, Nevada, an amendment approved by the U.S. Department of Health 
will allow Medicaid coverage and reimbursement to include community paramedicine services. And I have to tell you, this is a very, very big uh, hurdle to overcome. This is only going to be right now the second state, if my memory serves me right, maybe Colorado as well. But I know Minnesota was the first state. Uh, I'm not sure about Colorado, but uh, I, for some reason, I'm thinking they may be uh, part of it. But now Nevada is going to be uh, able to bill Medicaid for community paramedicine services. And I have to tell you, you know, when we think about the, the, the challenges when it comes to community paramedicine, one of the big uh, hurdles we hear all the time is... How are we going to Funding. pay for it? Yeah, how, Funding how are we and going to pay for it? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So as we now start to see these states that are coming on board, and uh, you know, um, that there's going to be more and more data that's going to allow us to, you know, get to the federal agencies to say, hey, look, look at what we've done, and look at what we've saved, and look at how we've developed. And I think that one of the big things it's it's not just you know what we saved, but it's how we're making patients healthier. Uh-huh. You know, because one of the things that you and I have talked about and one of the challenges with EMS is we bring people to places that they don't need to be. We take everybody to the emergency room, whether they need it or not. And even though, even though we're only 1% of the Medicare budget, we're responsible for almost 24% of the downstream revenue because we bring people to the emergency room that don't need to be there. Then they're getting blood work. Then they're getting x-rays. Then they're getting CAT scans. Then they're going home the same day. And so now if we're able to move people and get them where they need to be, i.e. get them on the, get on the phone with their PCP and get them a same-day appointment or take them down to the urgent care or wherever it is that they need to be, that's going to be that focus of community paramedicine. And I think that, you know, up there in Nevada, now that there's going to be some state reimbursement, uh-huh. I think that that's really a great opportunity for our career field to, uh, you know, be poised to uh, accept this new transition. You know, and yeah, the and and the fact that this is this amendment was approved by the U.S. Department of Health, you know, given giving the official federal stamp of approval uh, to a state allowing Medicaid coverage, uh, you know, I think that will kind of open the dam or or break the dam towards other states uh, adopting similar measures. You know, as you stated, the, the the big hurdle for the expansion of community paramedicine was a patchwork funding and reimbursement model. You, know, you had services and systems implementing it, you know, kind of a two-pronged approach. There's your your loss mitigation wing uh, aimed at, at reducing your super users of the system, uh, which didn't make you any money, but it, it hopefully it re- resulted in you losing less of it. Uh, and, and that was partially funded by the money that you actually made, the positive income, uh, from collaborating with hospitals to take care of their super users and their bounce back emissions and, uh, admissions and their, uh, um, their, um, chronic patients. Um, and, and that patchwork system was probably enough to get it going, but it, it, uh, doubtful, it was doubtful it was going to be enough to sustain it in the long run. And it's... But, you know, we said right here in this podcast, in, in previous podcasts, that, that CMS is looking at systems that are, you know, community paramedicine programs and looking at us uh, and, and really scrutinizing it, see if there's a workable model there. Um, uh, and, and 
that if they they found one, then then uh, that reimbursement model may actually change, and and we find community paramedicine fed, federally funded, or at least reimbursed by CMS, Medicare, and and the state Medicaid offices. And this is uh this is the the start of it, man. And it, hopefully, it will continue to grow, and other states will be able to adopt the same model, uh, and we'll start to see uh, um, our community served better by paramedics outside of ambulances. So, looking forward to hearing more about this. And I think that one of the things that we've got to think about is federal federal monies, I don't think, is the answer to the sustainability of community paramedicine practice in our, in our um, you know, for you our... You don't think so? No, no, no. And, and you've got to think about it well, now. I mean, there are people who are sending $1,500 bills out the door, and they're getting reimbursed $421, you know? Yeah. And, and that's, what Medi- that's what Medicare is paying for that. You know, now, when, when you think about community paramedicine, you think they're going to give you more than $421 for doing a home visit? You know, the answer is no, that they're not. And, you know, you're going to well, have to do a lot more home visits to, you know, to make up some of those things. But I think where the money comes in is the money comes in with the partnership of stakeholders with our healthcare systems, with ACOs, with, uh, um, you know, private payers. And I think that one of the things that is going to be really interesting is the the money that they're spending today is not money that they have to spend tomorrow. Well, yeah, go ahead. And that that's that cost savings that we can get our hands on. There are there are organizations who are doing community paramedicine that are saving healthcare systems millions and millions of dollars and they're getting pieces of that money. And uh, I, I got to think that and, and I got to tell you, I mean, we're, we're sitting here on a on a hill we've got binoculars and we're looking into the future and we're saying what does this community paramedicine thing look like it may be totally different five years uh-huh. from now we, we have no idea how big it can be but i do think that the answer is not going to be getting funding from medicare to keep this sustainable well sam i'm going to disagree with you and and not not so much with with what you said but the but the 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 end result of this sh- of federal funding. Um, I know you're the subject matter expert on this and, and not me, but, uh, one of the few things you're the subject matter expert on that <laughs> in our podcast. Thank you but, very much. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, hang on. I'm, re- I'm re-recording that over and over again. Yeah. So. This is the way, this is the way I look at it. And, and it's not so much that we need the federal funding, uh, and CMS reimbursement, uh, to make it financially viable. Um, but, the end result is is that federal recognition and federal reimbursement, at least on some level of community paramedicine, is the start to proving that there is, and demonstrating that there is a viable reimbursement method other than fee for transport. So this is not so much that it's going to the the federal reimbursement is the money we need, but it's the shift in thinking that allows EMS to move from a fee for transport uh, model to a fee for service model. Um, and that's going to be a, f- that would be a fundamental shift. In, well, let me, let me stop you. Let me stop reimbursement. You. What? So it's not fee for service because we get fee for service. Now what you're talking about, uh, I think. It no, is, no, no, we, we get, okay. We get a fee for service. So we do a service, we get a fee. I think what okay, you're trying to but, say is based on, based on pa- uh, patient outcomes and patient satisfaction that we're going to be getting a, a difference. So almost like the hospitals right now, if, if they're able to score these uh, metrics, they're getting more reimbursement. I think that's what you meant. 
We're no, no. Uh, what I meant was, is we have a fee for transport model. It is a fee for transport model. You think of what reimbursement we get, what little piddling reimbursement we get for the patients in traditional EMS systems. Uh, what, uh, reimbursement we get for not transporting a patient to the hospital can you think of any maybe the diabetic where we we do a call and 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 uh don't transport we don't get paid uh, for that you're right uh, As, asthma when we do people with uh, yeah, buterol or drafts? cardiac arrests we get we get some reimbursement for that if we declare them on scene but uh, and work the code on scene and do, don't transport we have a small handful of of specific types of calls that we get a little uh, token reimbursement for, usually well below the cost of providing the care. Um, but the vast majority of what we get paid for is taking people to the hospital, not rendering care, but taking people to the hospital. Uh, and that was, that was my point I agree about with the, you. The, the community paramedicine stuff. If, if we start getting um, reimbursement federally for not taking people to the hospital and pursuing alternate uh, uh, avenues of care and referring them to to non EMS uh, non emergency department destinations uh, and reducing the workload on the system that way, then that demonstrates the viability of a different funding model. Um, you know, and, and community paramedicine might be our, our inroads in that regards to, to changing the funding model wholesale uh, to shift away from, from uh, fee for transport. Think of it, as, think of it as, as community paramedicine in that sense as a pilot program for a different uh, delivery and reimbursement model for EMS. Uh, and if it proves viable, which uh, it's it's starting to look to, uh, then that may may uh, actually transform uh, the provision and, and reimbursement of EMS in general, not just community paramedicine, but uh, but uh, out of hospital care by paramedics in general. And that's what I'm looking at it as is uh, you know this this might be uh, something that uh, the the start of a major trend that shows that hey yeah we we can do. Uh, things effectively without taking people to the hospital. No, I agree. And I think that, you know, one of the things that's really kind of cool about this model, Kelly, is that there are organizations out there that can try anything they want right now because, you know, we're, we're in that mode of seeing how things can go and, huh. um, you know, how that's going to uh, affect in the future. So really we're in the pioneering stages and any EMS system can do whatever it is that they think that they can do to make a difference. And that could be what the model looks like from years from now. But just for a little bit of, you know, education from the CMS side, they categorize what we do as paying us a fee for service. So I know what you're saying, but yeah, you know, but just the, just the nomenclature. And that's, the terminology. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. Their nomenclature doesn't actually fit uh, exactly. the actual practice, but, but you know, I think you're cute. And I think yeah. that you, uh, <laughs> Certainly, uh, uh, saying that I'm the expert really made my day. So I, I think we're done now. So let's go ahead yeah. and move along. Um, can I throw one more in here? And it's a very quick, just a shout out to Eastern Kentucky University's Department of Paramedicine, uh, announcing the launch of an online hybrid paramedic program uh, starting in January. Uh, EKU's got a got a stellar program there. I, I know some of the faculty there. David Pfeiffer is is as good a good a uh, EMS educator as they come, and um, they're uh, they're starting this hybrid program. And you know. Uh, in our discussions in the past, I, I'm, I'm becoming a, a proponent of the hybrid uh, 
education program, uh, we can leverage uh, the power of the internet to do uh, reach a whole lot more students uh, more cost effectively. And it looks like uh, EKU is going to be on the uh, on the leading edge again. Um, they've they've got a long history of, of providing uh, an excellent paramedic education and one of the one of the earliest co-amps accredited uh, programs in the country. And and now they're moving into the the hybrid EMS education. So good on them. Uh, hopefully this, uh, this program will be a roaring success and, and uh, you'll see lots more uh, opportunities for paramedic education in, in Kentucky. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. So whether it's about community paramedicine or fire department EMS or hybrid EMS education, we'd like to hear your thoughts, concerns, comments, and suggestions. Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.